Hello and welcome to Public Health for the People with Dr. Amber. My name is Dr. Amber Schmidtke, and today we will be walking through the data for the state of Georgia in the COVID-19 pandemic for the 20th through the 27th of September. Today's special topic is going to be looking at a recent report on COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths among school-aged kids since the start of the pandemic through about mid-September. It's super interesting information that I look forward to sharing with you. But first, we'll start with what's going on in Georgia and how it fits into the national context. Since the start of the pandemic, we have been testing 26,000 people per 100,000 people. And for that, we're ranked 38th in the nation. But that's cumulative information. If we look more recently, we are ranked 33rd in the nation with 191 tests per 100,000 people in the last two weeks. And the Harvard Global Health Institute estimates that Georgia is doing about 51% of the testing that it needs to be doing. This is an improvement over last week, so hopefully we can continue that trend. In the past two weeks, we saw a big rebound in testing following a pretty big decline. So we, we made up some ground, but then last week we saw a 9% decrease. So it's sort of one step forward, two steps backwards. Despite this, the percent positive rate has declined, and last week's weekly average was 7.7%. Moving on to cases, the U.S., of course, has been red hot before, but we are not now. The Western Hemisphere is still warm, and the U.S. is ranked 20th in the world. In the U.S., the weekly case rate is about 96 per 100,000, and this is up from 88. Of the world's recorded cases, the U.S. has contributed 21.5% of them, despite making up only 4% of the world population. Georgia alone contributed 1% of the world's cases, despite making up just 0.1% of the world population. So I don't want anybody to uh, think that, you know, things have gone really well in Georgia. We are disproportionately contributing to disease in our world. But there's good news on the horizon in the sense that the South is cooling off in terms of disease intensity. And right now the hot spots are concentrated in the Midwest. So hopefully there can be some lessons that we've learned in the South that can be applied in the Midwest to try to bring this down. Of the top 10 states for case rate, only two are in the South right now. And that's really great news because we used to make up the majority. Right now it's just South Carolina and Alabama. And in fact, Georgia is no longer in the top 10 at all. We are ranked number 28 in the nation for weekly case rate of about 87 per 100,000. That's actually below the national average, but there's a catch to this. And we'll talk about it later when we talk a little bit more about a problem that's happening with testing. Overall, we added just over 8,500 new cases last week. And despite our declines in cases and case rate since the summer surge, we remain at a case rate that is about two times higher than where we were prior to the summer surge. So we are definitely not out of the woods yet. It's still not time to declare victory. It would be as though we were running a 26-mile marathon and stopped at mile 23 and decided we were done. We're not done. So just understand that and that the momentum of, of that hard-fought decline can turn very quickly if we're not careful. Among the new cases, they seem to be increasing among Black and African-American populations as well as white populations. That's concerning because those are our two largest demographics that contribute to cases. However, they're declining among most age groups. So it's possible that the increases that we're seeing in race are actually due to sort of of a resort of information out of the unknown category into their correct category. So it could be an artifact of that. 
Last week, there were 667 new cases among healthcare workers. And that will be something we want to make sure to keep track of as we go into the influenza season. By the way, make sure to get your flu shot because a sick healthcare worker cannot take care of us. Not to mention they endanger or they they put their family at risk by being sick with COVID-19. And so we want to make sure that this critical resource is protected, cared for, that they are able to do their jobs to the utmost ability um, because they have the PPE and other resources that they need. So as more of them are getting sick, that spells bad things for the state of Georgia. Looking at hospitalizations, Georgia was number one for several weeks, but we're now number two. That started a couple weeks ago, and we remain at number two at 12.02% of hospitalizations being due to COVID. And that's just behind, just behind the state of Mississippi, which is at 12.32%. The top three are Mississippi, Georgia, and South Carolina. Hospitalizations are holding steady and high among those who are 30 to 39, 60 to 69, and those over the age of 80. Last week, we saw 802 new hospitalizations, which is down from just over 1,000, and 185 new ICU admissions, which was 10 higher than the week before. ICU admissions are actually trending up in the past two weeks. So we're not really sure what that means yet, um, but hopefully it's not the beginning of a larger increase. Current hospitalizations continue to trend down slowly. Seeing them trend down at all is a really good sign. But we, again, are still 64% higher than we were prior to the summer surge. So while, you know, I know that there's a big call for optimism right now, things are getting better, but we still have not gotten to a place where we can declare victory. For deaths, our national weekly death rate is 1.6 per 100,000, and the United States is ranked 20th in the world for this, down from 18, a rank of 18 last week. Of that, uh, Georgia is ranked number seven for weekly death rate, up from position of number 10, and we're at twice the national average with a rate of 3.2 per 100,000. Five of the states in the top 10 are Southern states, unfortunately. Last week, we recorded 344 new deaths. That's a lot higher than the week before, which was 269. So while cases and hospitalizations appear to be declining, deaths are increasing. And our death rate is two times higher in rural counties in Georgia compared to the state average. In fact, both the case rate and the death rate show that Georgia is really facing two pandemics right now, the one that affects the Atlanta metro and the one that affects the rest of the state, including rural and non-rural counties, where the case rate and death rate is higher than what you see in the Atlanta metro. Deaths are increasing for both Black and African-American populations, but especially white populations where the increases are greater. Deaths continue to increase with age. You know, the, the likelihood of death and the, and the incidence of death is, is higher the, the older you are. Um, most of our age categories last week saw a decrease. There were exceptions, though, and, and that includes those who were 40 to 49 and 60 to 69. They remain high above the age of 70. Last week, there were nine deaths reported among healthcare workers. So, to summarize, our cases and hospitalizations seem to be declining. However, deaths are increasing. And I mentioned earlier that there's a catch in what looks like a decrease in our cases and hospitalizations. And that is that we have actually something that's a blessing, but also a curse. And that is that we are shifting to a new way of testing for COVID-19 called the rapid antigen test. And what this does, it's a uh, faster 
cheaper way of doing the test. Um, and it's less invasive. You don't have to have that swab that goes way back into the nasopharynx, um, which is the intersection of where your nasal cavity and your throat meet up, which is what's sort of the ideal sample for the PCR test. The state of Georgia only counts PCR tests for positive cases. So our case total only represents PCR tests. But because of the popularity of the rapid antigen test, because it is easier to perform, less uncomfortable for the patient, faster and cheaper, those cases that are identified or probably identified through that test are not being counted in our case total. The reason why is because these tests, while they have many advantages, are not as reliable as the PCR test. And so I think Georgia doesn't quite know what to do with them yet. Other states are including the rapid antigen test results in their case totals. They do so by calling those probable cases and keeping the PCR test identified cases as confirmed cases. Um, That sort of makes it a little bit challenging to track the data, both the cases, also testing, but it will also have impacts on things like hospitalizations and deaths, depending on how a person was tested. And so the problem is, as the preference among healthcare professionals shifts from the PCR test, which has been the gold standard this whole time, to this faster, easier, cheaper way of getting a test result, we sort of get an ever diminishing view of what's going on in our community in terms of where disease is spreading, where it's most common, um, where it's increasing, those sorts of things. We just, it's just not a good time to be in a position where we're sort of blind to where the cases are because we're heading into influenza season. Um, We know that there's going to be co-infections with that. We know that both diseases on their own can kill people. So we certainly don't want to make complications in our infections this fall. So while it looks like things are decreasing for Georgia, it's really kind of hard to know whether that's real or if that's an artifact of this shift in testing preference. Okay, so this week we're going to take a look again at some data that have to do with COVID-19 and children. I'm a mom. A lot of my listeners are moms or grandmothers or people that care about kids and what's going on there. And honestly, the biggest question I get is what is the best thing to do for my kids when it comes to school. And so the information that we got today from the CDC out of a journal called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report is really important. It looks at how cases, hospitalizations, and deaths have accumulated among school-aged kids aged 5 to 17 from the start of the pandemic until September 19th, so just really last week. And so far, there have been 101,503 cases among those who are 5 to 11, representing elementary-aged kids, and just over 171,000 cases among those who are 12 to 17. That makes a grand total of over 277,000 cases since the start of the pandemic, which feels so massive. So something of, so many different things came out of this study that are really interesting. Uh, 2.8 of these kids that were infected had an underlying condition. And the most common one they identified was chronic lung disease, which includes asthma. The reason why this matters is because 
sometimes a pre-existing condition or an underlying condition like this can make a case of COVID-19 that much more complex and complicated. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to. Perhaps you have a perfectly well-managed case of diabetes, for example, but sometimes there will be an association of more severe outcomes if you have an underlying condition. However, Moving on for now, of those kids that have been infected in this study, there have been 3,240 kids who have been hospitalized. 404 of those have required an ICU bed stay, which means a pretty serious form of this disease. And of course, the most serious manifestation of all is death. And unfortunately, we have had 51 deaths among this age group between ages 5 and 17 since the start of the pandemic. So the next question really to think about is how does Georgia fit into that? So around the same time, September 19th, I also happened to take note of what Georgia was reporting in terms of demographic data for age when it comes to cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And it turns out that the age cohorts align perfectly. So that's kind of great. So of these kids in that same period of time, Georgia reported 8.2% of the nation's cases. 8.8% of the nation's pediatric hospitalizations within this school-aged demographic, and almost 10% of the deaths. So remember I said there have been 51 pediatric deaths within that school-aged cohort, ages 5 to 17. Of those 51, five of them came from Georgia. Meanwhile, keep in mind that Georgia is a relatively, I mean, it's it's an important state, don't get me wrong, but as a whole, it represents just 3.2% of the U.S. population. So if we have only 3% of the U.S. population, why in the world are we contributing such a high, heavy toll when it comes to cases, hospitalizations, and deaths with our children? And and, and it's frustrating. It's hard to see those numbers as a parent, as a person that cares deeply about public health. Last week, the Department of Public Health indicated in their school surveillance data report that comes out on Fridays that they were investigating over 30 school-associated outbreaks. However, they're not providing any more details on that. In fact, um, they told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in a report last week when they were asking uh, for more clarity that the public has no legal right to information about outbreaks that the state is investigating. And I, I got to say, as a parent, this is incredibly frustrating. And as a public health person, I think that this, um, it doesn't sound like public health. It just doesn't. It sounds like politics. Um, and the, the unfortunate situation is that we have parents needing to make life or death decisions here. And you can't ask them to make those decisions, ask them to make evidence-based decisions, and not allow them access to the evidence. I worry about what this is going to mean for public trust. After all, public health, the reason why is it, why it is successful is because it relies so heavily on public trust and public buy-in to the things that they're trying to do, whether that's a vaccination campaign, turning over um, old tires so that we aren't breeding mosquitoes that can contribute to things like West Nile virus and other uh, mosquito-borne diseases. We need that public buy-in, and that public buy-in comes with public trust. And so when you diminish public trust, you hurt public buy-in. So I'm very nervous about what this is going to mean for us, and I'm frustrated as a parent. 
So, but keeping that in mind, there's a reason why parents want to know more about this. In a September 16th press release that the state released, they said that schools were the number one source of outbreaks in the week that they were reporting and the number two source of outbreaks since the start of the pandemic. Keep in mind that schools have been closed for most of this pandemic. So for them to be the number two source of outbreaks since the start of the pandemic means that they've been doing an awful lot of catching up since schools opened their doors in late July, early August. They are out competing things like prisons and correctional facilities and military uh, installations, for example. They are only second to long-term care facilities. So I really think that we need this information in order for parents to make a, a good decision. Next week, I want us to kind of keep on this topic of kids a little bit and kind of think about what can we do for Halloween this year. Fall and Halloween are arguably some of my favorite times of the year. I get so much joy from seeing all the the kids of my friends on my social media networks, watching those kids grow up over time, seeing what kind of things they're into with which costume they choose. It's an important holiday and kids have had to give up so much this year already that I know so many of us want to make Halloween special. And so we'll come back next week with some ideas on how we can do that safely um, and still give kids, you know, the freedom and flexibility that they want. So I want to encourage you, if you like the information you're getting from this podcast, uh, that's great. I'm very flattered. But just understand you're only getting this information weekly. I actually have a newsletter that you can get information like this sent directly to your inbox, and it comes out four to five times a week. Uh, you can find it on it. The website is Amber Schmidt Key, which is spelled S C H M I D T K E phd.substack.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter and get connected that way. Um, but the newsletter is a great source of information. There are free and paid subscription possibilities available. And so I'd encourage you to find me that way too. So again, next week, we'll talk about what to do for Halloween in the spirit of COVID. And with that, be safe and be well, make good choices. And I'll see you next week.